Shelly Bruce, Chief of the Communications Security Establishment. to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm joined here today with Leah West, and we're both really excited to welcome onto the podcast Shelly Bruce, who is the Chief of the Communication Security Establishment, or CSE. Shelly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I was just wondering, rather than having me introduce you, if you could introduce you, and if you could just briefly talk about your current job as the chief of the CSE and how you got to be there. Sure. Thanks, Stephanie. I actually started at CSE 32 years ago this month, which uh, is a really long time ago. And if you think about career paths, I would say that None of that was deliberate for me. There were so many interesting things about how I got there. It was really my curiosity that took hold and propelled me through the organization. So I started out as an intelligence analyst, but soon became fascinated by the technology and the tradecraft that we used and really tried to understand how that complex machine worked at CSE. And once I started to understand the moving parts, all the the cogs and the pulleys of, of especially the signals intelligence branch, I got to be fascinated by how you manage all of that and how you organize that mission. So I became chief planner at one point. I had roles in policy, uh, in metrics and statistics. I was a bit of a baseball fan. So I really tried to understand how those kinds of numbers could help explain what our mission was and how it worked. So I spent most of the early part of my career on the signals intelligence side and then moved into the IT security side in the late 1990s, where I learned a lot about detection and foreign cyber threats. At that point, I got a bit of a gig outside CSE at the Privy Council office, where I learned about how our machine fit into the much bigger government machine and the Canadian machine, and then eventually became an executive. And now the rest is history, at least 32 years of CSE's 75-year history. So today I'm chief. I oversee a really important organization within Canada's national security fabric, and we are responsible for foreign intelligence, cybersecurity, and information assurance, as well as foreign cyber operations and providing assistance to other organizations within the Canadian government. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Shelley. So as you mentioned, CSC is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. How is your organization marking the occasion? Obviously, I'm sure some of these plans were compromised by the pandemic, but how is CSC celebrating? Thanks, Leah. It is an absolute milestone of an anniversary, 75 years, three quarters of a century. And we're hoping to make it a pretty big deal. It's interesting when you think back about our mission and how the core of our mandate has just been so constant over those seven and a half decades, regardless of the era that we were in. The government priorities of the day, of course, changed and our operating environment changed, sometimes dramatically. And there's really no industry analog. So we're the ones writing the playbook for that. And I think if we're going to celebrate one thing, it's going to be the spirit that allowed us to be successful over those seven and a half decades. And in large part, that's our employees their dedication, their spirit of innovation, their curiosity, their collaboration. It's all really a key part of the recipe that allows us to be successful. So COVID uh, will be absolutely cramping our style, but we are going to use some of the innovation and ingenuity that we have applied over the last 75 years to making 2021 a successful year. 
we have lots of things underway now. We're talking a lot about our history. We're sharing stories. We're gathering more stories from current and former employees, many of which are fascinating. We reached out to former chiefs. We also have partners with whom we have worked very closely over the past uh, several decades. We're holding out for a party later on in the year, and we hope to also have some publications that we can make available and merch. There will always be merch for the employees who, who want to recognize and remember this amazing milestone in our history. Everyone's going to watch some of that CSU. I was just going to ask if the merch was going to be publicly available. <laughs> I, find... <laughs> I will find a way to get you some, I promise. <laughs> I have a, podcasting. <laughs> right. I have a CSE deck, actually. Actually, it's worth stating. The first guests we had on the podcast were from the CSE, you know, way, way back in the day now. But it's, it's interesting because we've talked about the history uh, of the CSE, but really a lot of the change has come very recently, in particular with the passing of the CSE Act in 2019. We've seen the legislative changes, but what has that meant for for the CSE's kind of internal culture. For example, the organization itself has been very, very closed door, I would say for probably 98% of its history. And suddenly you have a a cyber center that's very open facing, uh, you have a very active social media account, you're on a podcast, all these kinds of things. So how has that, you know, changed the CSE along with that legislation? That's a great question. And it's absolutely true that the first 55 years of our authorities and our mandate were really grounded in cabinet direction and legal opinions. In 2001, we had the opportunity after 9-11 to redefine our mandate in legislative form in the National Defense Act. And that happened quite quickly, but it was surprisingly enduring and really got us to, to 2019, which is, as you mentioned, when the CSE Act was brought into force. And that really was the culmination of almost a decade of really understanding what the challenges were and uh, what the future was for our mandate and trying to make sure that we could be uh, have a sustainable set of authorities going forward and, and also authorities that were much more transparent. They're quite explicit, the language in, in the CSE Act. There's leaves very little to the imagination about what, what we are doing out there in the global information infrastructure. But the the authorities also gave us an opportunity to be a little bit more forward-facing. We had, as you mentioned, the creation of the Cyber Center, but the Act also gives us the opportunity to share some of the tools and the knowledge that we are creating for the defense of government networks with, with Canadian businesses, with Canadians, and infrastructure owners and operators. We also have the capabilities in the reach and now the authorities to reduce those threats are coming at us by taking action abroad. So these are things that are important for Canada's toolkit and that we're anxious to talk about having as options for Canadian decision makers and operators. There are other things that have driven us into the public eye, of course, annual reports, review committees, social media. We have obviously the Get Cyber Safe campaign and other uh, cyber awareness campaigns. The government has launched a transparency initiative. So this is absolutely the momentum that is building and has all kind of come together into this perfect storm of inviting CSE to be much more engaged with with the public. So how has that affected our culture? You're right, we were a very secret organization. We used to read with the interest when whenever we appeared in the media, we were called an ultra secret organization and we sort of held our breath as we were reading what was coming. I would say today we think of ourselves not so much as that as, and not even 
not even a secret organization. We're an organization that has secrets, of course, and we will guard them fiercely, but we're really getting a lot more comfortable talking about the things that we can and the things that we should talk about. It's quite liberating to be able to take some of the unique experience and and expertise that exists within the organization and share that with Canadians. We also have a really great track record with diversity and under how that has helped us be more operationally relevant and successful. And so these are the kinds of things that are really important and that we, we love to, to share. We're getting as well a little bit better, quite a bit better, I would say, at taking those things that are traditionally classified and trying to find ways to extract the key messages and the key insights from them and put them into our more public-facing uh, publications, like the National cyber threat assessment and the threats to democratic processes reports. So classified information will always be a differentiator, but I think we are growing into our skin when it comes to being a public facing organization and understanding exactly what we have to, to share with Canadians and just how valuable that can be in giving Canadians an advantage in, especially in cyber defense. So part of transparency isn't just at, at your organization level transparency is a national security commitment that the government has made and part of that is also coming with additional transparency around review and oversight there's been increased review and oversight since bill c-59 came into force and you've recently been subject to review by a, a new agency in Syra for the first time in 2019 we haven't seen the 2020 report yet but 2019 was the first time we actually review of CSC by this new oversight body. And subsequent to that, an actual full review came out and talking about, and the first one in Cyber Polish was about CSC. And so the report revealed that there were some discrepancies about information sharing. Can you just talk about that, how you're working with review agencies about being more transparent about what their findings are, what your reviews uh, and responses to reviews are? First of all, I should say at the outset that we find review absolutely critical. It's very important for both the agencies that are being reviewed and for the public who can take some comfort in knowing that these proxies, whether it's NCRA or NSICOP, have access to information that is not um, made public, but that they can review and provide assurances on the activities and how they're conducted and where there's room for improvement. We've had review since 1996 when the office of the CSE commissioner was created and we've worked over the next couple of decades to really find a, a groove with them. And in 2019, of course, NCIRA came on board with C59 and we've been sort of restarting some of that process and working with them to help explain our really complicated business. CSE is a very, very complex technical machine. And so they are now taking the time to, to really dig in and make sure that they have the, the fundamentals, the foundational pieces and can uh, review us in that context. Uh, with respect to the specific reviews that NCRA launches, we work with them, we establish terms of reference, they submit requests for information, we reporting back to them and they work with us to flesh out and understand the different aspects of our business and they write their reports. So I think we're working through a lot of this now as a new review agency 
and CSE with new legislation. And I'm confident that we are going to come to a place where we are extremely comfortable with each other and that uh, we maintain our, our respective reputations for excellence going forward. So there was a lot there in in the last couple of questions with regards to new legislation, new culture, and new review and and all the changes that brings. I'm wondering if there's anything in particular that was a bit of a surprise in the past two years since the CSE Act was passed that, you know, maybe hadn't been anticipated or needs to be addressed in the future? Sure. In the uh, operating environment, I don't think anything has come as a surprise to us that would require a rethink. It's our job to be ready for the unexpected and to be preferably predicting that environment. Externally, I would say no, but internally, we've had to muster an extraordinary amount of effort in, in rebuilding all of our policy foundations and our operational tradecraft. The CSE Act is not a lick of paint on the National Defense Act. This is a fundamental rewiring of our legal DNA. And that's not the kind of thing you can just assign to a single team. This is something that is pervasive throughout the organization and can't be done with exchange of draft documents, for example. So one of the interesting things we've done is we've pulled all the operational teams, legal teams, policy teams into, well, used to be big boardrooms, and really trying to use that uh, brain trust to pull the new way of working together. It hurt a little bit at first. It was not the kind of traditional bureaucratic approach to to this kind of change, but it turned out to be an amazing learning opportunity for all of those different disciplines. And it really put together much more solid products, much better policy considerations. And frankly, in the end, I think it was faster timelines. So there's no going back for us. It's it's going to be the, the way of the future. We continue to implement the authorities that were in the CSE Act. And to date, we're collecting small ideas, which we can roll into the three-year review. But at this point, I would not say there are any major impediments to us delivering our, our mandate through the current legal instrument. Speaking around getting everyone around a table, I would like to turn now to the site task force, which CSC was a part of and and led. So that was the Security Intelligence Threats to the Election Task Force that was established prior to the uh, federal election in 2019. There's talks now that there we could be seeing an election potentially after the budget and threats to elections, disinformation, influence, as we're, I'm sure we'll talk about, all remain pervasive. So can you talk a little bit about the Site Task Force CSC's role and how you see the Site Task Force moving forward? Yeah, sure. In 2018, I think around in the fall of 2018, we decided that it would make sense to pull together key players from CSE, CSIS, the RCMP, as well as Global Affairs to take a look at all of the different perspectives and and operational insights that we had on foreign interference, especially as it relates to the election, but frankly, as it relates to to anything relevant. We were able to use that as a way to connect dots across mandates and to make sure that certain information wasn't falling through the cracks that we understood and how tactics might be playing out. We looked globally as well because some of those global trends would presumably manifest in in Canada. So the, uh, the task force itself was was novel, but really not that uh, surprising as a concept. There was a lot of value, I think, in, in having that. It was 
housed at CSE, but it was really very much a, a no host kind of arrangement. We were briefing very frequently the election incident protocol panel, those eminent bureaucrats who were looking at the, the thresholds for foreign interference. We're also able to clear members of political parties and brief them. We also used the site task force to you know, sanitize information to the degree we could and to present that to the media. So it was very important to have that group of people together, uh, pulling together the insights of the government's key organizations watching this space and, and to pass that information back out. We were also able to give a lot of cybersecurity advice and guidance, not just to Elections Canada and the infrastructure that they needed to maintain across Canada, but also for candidates, for campaign managers, for for party IT teams, like it was really important that they had as much of the best advice and guidance we could give them on how to fortify their own systems and practices and behaviors so that they wouldn't be more susceptible to some of these threats. So it was it was a bit of a novel effort, but it's something that has endured and, and still is percolating in the background, as you say, in anticipation of whatever events might come over the next year or so. So that to me kind of just gets back to our early conversation about cultural change. Like if you had told me back in 2015 that CSE would be hanging out with Elections Canada, I would have laughed in your face. Like I, I just wouldn't have believed it. It's really remarkable uh, to see the way the threat environment has changed. That's kind of required these these collaboration with non-traditional security partners within uh, the Canadian government. And speaking of which, speaking of of threats and and crisis, we have COVID-19. So we've heard a lot about the security threats coming from from this pandemic. We've heard a lot from CSE itself, the fact that you guys decided to go public about taking down websites, I believe in March 2020, the first time it was ever really, I think, admitted. So I was wondering if you can talk about how the CSE has been working during the pandemic, the kinds of challenges that you've you've seen, and your response to these kind of new threats that have emerged as a result. Thanks. Yeah, CSE has been pretty busy, surprisingly busy during a pandemic, both on the foreign intelligence side and on the cybersecurity and cyber defense side. So as, as, you, as everybody knows, the pandemic forced more and more people online, and that increased the threat surface that was out there. And that threat surface was expanding at a time when anxiety and, and stress were also quite high. So this made Canadian businesses, Canadian citizens, the health sector, researchers more susceptible, more at risk for cyber threats. We watched very carefully at the beginning how cyber criminals especially shifted their tradecraft and used specific COVID themes as the kind of subterfuge that would draw Canadians in and and get them to click on things, to defraud them of money or to steal their credentials or their personal information. Uh, You're right, we did start working with the private sector to advise them of these fraudulent domains and they took them down offline. It was just part of our, our partnership mandate with, uh, within the cyber security and cyber defense a part of our, our legend. That information is given to them and, and they took the decision after they anal- analyzed the, the threat to, to take those fraudulent domains offline. And so far, there've been about 5,000 of them that have gone offline. We also have shared a lot of our threat information very publicly. We have 
been working very closely with the health sector and researchers specifically, especially researchers in the vaccine areas and in making sure that they have access to the indicators of compromise that we see globally that they can uh, apply to their own systems to make as protected as possible. And you may have uh, noticed last summer, we also attributed some specific activity to a state actor that was targeting some of the Canadian health researchers. So it's, it's definitely been an interesting year, and it has definitely brought us a lot closer to the health sector and working in tandem with them as they are looking at protecting their systems and warding off ransomware and other exploits that especially criminals are taking advantage of. We also have a role in supporting government networks. And so as the government watched its employees move to their work from home arrangements, we've been responsible for really upping the security to make sure that government information stays as uh, secure as possible. And we've also been working on parliamentary business and making sure that uh, there are secure solutions for the continuation of parliamentary business and cabinet business. So we've been very, very busy. On top of all of that, we've also seen some really major uh, state-sponsored hacks against our allies and against international companies and programs that software, I should say, that is used widely, including in Canada, like the SolarWinds hack. We've seen the Microsoft hack. There's also been a large hack against the U.S. State Department. And we haven't seen the same kind of threat indicators that Canadian companies or Canadian governments might have been compromised by these hacks that we saw in the United States. And Canada has actually ranked really, really highly in terms of cyber defense. The Harvard Belfer Center in 2020 ranked Canada number three. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about this hack, the trends, and how CSC works to defend Canadian government and and infrastructure from these types of attacks to the extent that you can. So I am so proud of the work that CSE has done, especially over the last couple of decades in protecting government networks. We really have honed our craft in that space. And I would say right now, the the defense of Canadian government networks is a world-class enterprise. There are some days when we are actually blocking up to 10 billion events or actions that are taken on top of commercial censors against the government of Canada. So these are all informed by the extra information that we're able to bring through our our different mandates. And, And I think that that's why you have not seen as many exploitations in the government context from some of these, these events that are playing out around the world. But, you know, Canadian cyberspace is much bigger than the government of Canada. And we are trying, as I said, to parlay the things that we learn and the expertise that we get from working in the government context into the more public domain. So there's no shortage of advice. When events like SolarWinds or the Microsoft hack happen, we absolutely put out alerts as soon as uh, we have the information available to us. Those are posted publicly. If there are victims, we go specifically to victims that we're aware of and we We let them know, and we also offer our assistance in any way that they require. We really try and not just keep that conversation for when bad things happen. That's why things like the National Cyber Threat Assessment are so important to put out what we learn over time and to make sure that uh, people have that kind of background information. That will tell you that cybercrime is the most significant threat that Canadians will face, although state-sponsored hacking is still a strategic threat that we need to be concerned about. When there are specific threats, as I mentioned earlier, we will go 
go back out to organizations and sectors specifically and give them advice and guidance. When there are tactics that we see on the rise around the world, we will also provide a specific advice and guidance, for example, on ransomware or supply chains or things that small and medium businesses can do to, to keep their, their organizations safer. We are also working with the private sector and looking at organizations like CIRA and helping to develop something that's called Canadian Shield, which is an app that benefits from CSE cyber threat feeds. So it's got a little extra special sauce in it. So if you feel like that's a good app to download, that can give you some added protections. We're also taking technology that's developed in-house and putting that into the open source environment and allowing developers access to, to help improve it and to customize it for their own needs building analytics and tradecraft to help protect their own systems. Of course, we work with the telecom sector. We have the Get Cyber Safe campaigns, and we're really trying to reach out to Canadians as well so that we can have 38 million frontline defenders who are practicing the best cyber hygiene. And that's ultimately what it comes down to is having just practicing the basic measures of, of cyber protection will ward off a great number of these threats, even some of the most sophisticated ones. You mentioned twice now, you mentioned state-sponsored actors, and you also talked about attribution in one particular case of, of China and, and health information. Can you explain CSE's thinking about the benefits or the, the costs uh, and the decision-making behind attribution and what the value of attributing hacks and and the exploitations by state sponsors is? Sure. I mean, cyber is a very unique environment and it's, it's unusual in that we are trying to shift malign actors, whether they're state or criminal, away from Canadian targets and to fortify this Canadian cyberspace. At the same time as there's this barrage of activity coming against us. It's also not terribly well-defined in international law or in terms of norms. So it's, it's important that we continue to talk and to draw the perimeter around some of this so that uh, we can decide what, is, what constitutes responsible behavior versus what constitutes irresponsible behavior. And while the bottom line is that the best defense will always be a good defense, it is important to, to consider that things are always evolving and that there are a lot of like-minded partners out there with whom we can work and come up with ideas, especially in the area of public attribution. I think this is, this is one area where we can, either alone or together with those partners, express where we see the limits of and the boundaries of activity. And you know, that could be interfering with democratic elections or stealing IP for commercial purposes. Those are lines that we would say should not be crossed. And if you do that, then we might feel the need to call you out. You know, attributing publicly is also very helpful in terms of raising awareness, especially in last summer when the uh, vaccine research sector was being targeted globally. This is sort of a call to all of them to think about their protecting their own intellectual property and to take extra measures. And over time, those little dots that we put on the map may eventually help us define the specific norms that uh, we are wanting to live within. Will it deter activity? I think time will tell about that, but there are other benefits to attribution that maybe transcend stopping a specific actor from doing a specific thing. 
So Shelly, I appreciate your time and we're coming to the end of the interview. And one of the things I do want to focus on is that if anyone who follows the CSE social media accounts knows that you guys do a lot of work at trying to promote diversity and women in STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of the CSE's efforts at trying to promote these activities, trying to promote diversity within the organization itself. Diversity is absolutely key to our business. We need that kind of representation. We need different perspectives and skills and experience and backgrounds. And when I started, I was fortunate to work with a great group of women in my command chain. And it's generally been like that uh, throughout my career. Women in STEM are underrepresented, but I would also note that at CSE, we are really lucky to have incredible, talented women at the helm of many of our key programs whether it's our quantum program, our crypt program, intelligence, our industry partnerships, policy review, our legal department, just to name a few. We have some really extraordinary role models, and that's a really important part of the equation. We're also working with groups like HackerGal and CyberTitan and Black Boys Code and really trying to reach out to especially the student population. We have some schools in Ottawa that we're also working with. And this has been really, really important, not just in terms of socializing the idea of STEM across underrepresented groups out there, but also for our people. It's hugely motivating for them to go out and talk about the kinds of things they love doing and sharing their knowledge and their skills and expertise with, with the younger generation. So it's a really important part of our outreach. And uh, hopefully we're building new graduates that will eventually come and work at CSE and do great things. Speaking of sharing the things you love with younger generations, our last question for all of our pod sites, many of Stephanie and my students will be listening. And I just went through admissions for Nipsia. So I can tell you there are hundreds of young people out there looking to work for organizations like yours in Canada. What advice do you have for them? My advice is to be curious and ask questions. This is really uh, a critical part of learning. Listening, becoming as expert as you possibly can in whatever time you have, on whatever task you have, just throw yourself in and try to learn as much as you possibly can. And I think the last thing I would say is to understand risk but think audaciously, understand where the red lines are, but in all other aspects, just go for broke and really come up with the wildest ideas you can, because that's what we need these days. Thank you so much. Yeah, Shelly, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. It really has been interesting to hear you reflect on some of the changes that your organization is going through, uh, whether because of the legislative changes, the cultural changes, the pandemic changes, everything really (laughs) seems to be in flux. We really appreciate your insights and taking the time to sit down and share that with our listeners. It was an absolute pleasure. 